Welcome to the Contrarian Investor Podcast. We give voice to those who challenge a prevailing sentiment in global financial markets. This podcast is for informational purposes only. Nothing on this podcast should be taken as investment advice. Guests were not compensated for their appearance, nor do they supply payment in order to appear. Individuals on this podcast may hold positions in the securities that are discussed. Listeners are urged to educate themselves and make their own decisions. This podcast episode may have ads and the occasional announcement. To listen without ads or announcements and take advantage of a host of other benefits, consider becoming a premium subscriber. Prices start at $9 per month. Visit the website contrarian.supercast.tech. That's T-E-C-H for more information. Now, here's your host, Mr. Nathaniel E. Baker. This podcast episode is brought to you by Merck Research. MerckResearch.com, M-E-R-K. I read these reports on a regular basis and can say that I get a lot of value out of them. Merck Research is different from other research, which usually just cherry picks all positive or all negative charts and then falls into the trap of confirmation bias. Merck Research provides an intellectually consistent approach by going through a consistent set of relevant data and then putting it through a consistent set of frameworks, which is then summarized in a checklist and in a concise written summary. Their monthly economic and market data review provides an excellent overview of the macro landscape. It's all compiled in one place and easy to interpret chart books with written analysis. And now listeners of this podcast can take advantage of a special offer and get a three-month free trial to Merck Research. Simply visit the website merckresearch.com forward slash contrarian. That's Merck spelled M-E-R-K. Or you can log on to merckresearch.com, sign up for a regular subscription, and enter the code contrarian at checkout to take advantage of this free offer. Now on to today's episode. Gary Mishouris, Managing Partner and Chief Investment Officer of Silver Ring Value Partners in Boston. Your investment firm, as the name suggests, has a value-oriented approach, which in certain ways is maybe contrarian itself. But you have a view here on behavioral finance, which is what prompted me to want to invite you onto the show. Because behavioral finance in many ways is kind of central to contrarian investing in the first place. The idea here that the crowd has gotten something fundamentally wrong about the market and is either overpricing or underpricing assets as a result. And being able to identify those situations and then profit from them is, of course, the contrarian's creed if there is such a thing. But anyway, over to you. Maybe you can tell me a little bit about your approach, your views of behavioral finance specifically, and what the market is getting wrong right now. Sure. And again, thank you for having me. I appreciate the opportunity. I think you have to think as an investor about your edge. And what what is your edge, right? And there's a few potential sources. You know, In the old days, so I started my career at Fidelity, and before Reg of D, you could dial for dollars. You know, you would hear stories from portfolio managers from the Peter Lynch's of the world. Uh, you could call a CFO and ask them how the quarter is going, right? So that would be an example of an informational edge nowadays. If you do that, you're gonna, you know, uh, go to jail or something like that. So that's kind of gone away. Plus, with computers, there's very little information that's not out there in people's hands. There's an analytical edge, which is, you know, you're looking at the same data and you maybe are thinking about it differently. And that that exists out there. And I do use that sometimes. And I think a lot of people nowadays focus on that analytical edge. But I think there's a third edge that's probably underutilized. And that's what I think it's worth talking about today, which is this behavioral edge. And that's not necessarily that you are analyzing anything differently. It's that you are more aware of behavioral biases, how they affect other investors, and how they affect yourself. And you um, are better able to play you know, combination of offense, you know, meaning taking advantage of the behavioral mistakes of others, and defense, which is minimizing or, you know, at least limiting the impact of those biases on yourself. 
Very interesting. Okay, so let's talk about the second one of these because that's uh, somewhat unusual and unique. We all know about the first, which is that, okay, the markets and the, the one that I touched on at the outset, which is, okay, the market's going wrong here. How do we profit from it? But now you're saying that this is also something that affects investors' behavior in terms of making mistakes. Tell me more about that. Yeah, so I think that uh, basically, you know, you think about yourself, right? When no one is immune from these biases, you know, uh, except for me. No, I'm kidding. You know, right? You know, that, that's what we all and think. Me. You know, we all want to think like, well, you know, there are all these biases out there, uh, but they really don't apply to me. And that's like the number one bias, right? Um, right? So I think first is admitting that those things affect you just as much as anyone else if you don't do anything about them. And then I think you have to be systematic and disciplined in how do you set yourself up to minimize them, which, by the way, I think is the best you can do. I don't think okay. you can eliminate them. Right. And so here are some ways. Like, so let's take a bias. Let's take something like, you know, a confirmation bias, right? That, you know, you know it's well known that once you uh, have an idea, you are eager to seek out evidence that confirms the idea and you are not so eager, you know, you reject disconfirming evidence, right? Mm. So uh, on Twitter, sorry, go on. Yeah, no, yeah, like the echo chamber, right? You know, like mm. people are seeking out like-minded views and that's probably true in politics, but I think, you know, I'll stick to investing here. It's definitely true in investing. So one thing I've done is I've set up this uh, little circle of other investor friends. I call the Devil's Advocate Club. Mm. And what this is, is it's a small group where uh, anyone can request someone else to do a serious you know, amount of work uh, and take kind of a devil's advocate point of view on an idea. And the point here is it's not meant to be, oh, okay, you just give me some 30-second off-the-cuff remark. It's, okay, someone else is going to spend you know, a week or two doing some serious digging as if they were you know, considering shorting this investment, even if they don't short, just from a point of view, trying to come up with the most negative possible uh, viewpoint. And then uh, they present it, and then the discussion ensues. And the idea is you're probably not going to be yourself as good at debiasing yourself as someone else who doesn't already have the same, that confirmation bias in their mind. So they might, they might be much better at digging up negative uh, points of view hmm. on an investment that you might miss. So that's, that's a simple example right there. And then, But I don't think a lot of people use it. Yeah. Well, now that is something... That sounds very useful, but if we're talking about somebody doing a week or two of work, would they be paid for that research then, presumably? No, or... I think it's a kind of a mutual defense, uh, uh -huh. uh, you know, kind of a, a idea. Like the membership in the club, you know, is uh, gets you 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 provide analysis and you receive analysis, right? All so right. anyone can uh, in that group say, "Hey guys, I have such and such company uh, that I'm looking." Um, you know, it's usually not an easy kind of it's not like oh okay do this this week do this that week because then nobody would have any time it's reserved for when you have a serious position and you're starting to question whether like let's say you see a completely different value than the market hmm. and it's been the case for a while and that's happened to me on the stock uh i won't name it by name but you know it's in the news right now in some ways with these block trading phenomena hmm. where i you know had this very meaningful position for a long time and you know, at some point it's like, well, it's cheap. I get that. I really think it's mispriced, but let me get the strongest possible negative view because someone who's intelligent and who speaks my language of value investing, right? Hmm. I'm not looking for to talk to someone who's going to say, well, uh, the chart doesn't look that good. I'm not saying that that's not valid, but it's not part of my process. Hmm. I'm looking for someone who speaks the language of fundamental value investing and is going to push back really hard on my thesis in a way that hopefully will make me see some potential problems that maybe I've been missing because I've been just, you know, looking for confir uh, confirmatory evidence and rejecting the rest. Interesting. Very interesting. Uh, two questions, two things come to mind here. First of all, investors, especially fund managers, tend to be pretty headstrong, right? And that's partly by design. I mean, you kind of need to be if you're managing money, certainly. And so a lot of them are, uh, of course, very much uh, have this confirmation bias going in. And so, okay, so say somebody humbles themselves and, and goes this route, what's to stop them from kind of just dismissing the contradictory evidence out of hand? Like, oh, okay, well, that's what this guy came up with, but he's not that smart. 
Yeah, nothing. Uh, well, first of all, I think part of it is it's a very small group of uh, people, and it's not like it's not a club that you know. I'm not recruiting for this. <laughs> you know, these oh. are people who are themselves, you know, 10, 15, 20 plus a year investment professionals. Um, so you're and that have mutual respect. And I think you're oh. exactly right. Like if you're, you know, if you're gonna take a person off the street and say, hey, can you give me some negative thesis on stock X, Y, Z, that First of all, they're not likely to do it. Second of all, if they are going to do it, they might not do it well. Third of all, even if somehow they do it well, you will say, this is a guy off the street. But these are people you've chosen. Yeah. So in a sense, you have a now commitment bias or consistency bias, right, which hmm. is another behavioral bias. You have chosen to respect them, to invite them into this club, right? Therefore, hmm. you have made a statement in your mind that these are people whose values and whose you know, process you respect. Mm -hmm. So it would now be inconsistent for you to all of a sudden say, well, just because they're saying things that I don't like, I no longer respect them, right? Got it. So I think it does. it's not perfect, but at least there are other counter – so you're trying to align one set of biases to counteract you know, another mm -hmm. set of biases. Mm -hmm. Very cool. Okay, yeah, that, that's, that's a good answer. And then also the other question would be what about – you know, markets move pretty quick, especially nowadays. And so if we're talking about a couple of weeks for somebody to vet this – and then to kind of process all of it, by that point, the opportunity may be gone, right? Well, maybe, but again, I think it depends what you're doing. If you're a high-frequency yeah. trader, this isn't for you. Forget it, yeah. I mean, my, you know, uh, you know, uh, my holding period tends to be three to five years, right? Okay. And I'm a concentrated investor. I hold between 10 and 15 uh, investments at a time. So I have plenty of time uh, to come to my decision. I also have plenty of time to change my mind. Mm. So I think that speed from my approach um, for concentrated fundamental value approach, it's not really important to make quick decisions. It's very important to make, on average, very high quality decisions because given the concentration, the cost of a mistake or the benefit from a success is going to be meaningful. Hmm. Very cool. All right. Gary Mashuris of Silver Ring Value Partners. I want to take a very short break and come back and ask you some more questions about this, about you, and about the markets. But hang out just one second. If you are a premium subscriber, you will not get the break, so do not touch the dial. We hope you're enjoying this episode of the Contrarian Investor Podcast, where we give voice to those who challenge a prevailing narrative in global financial markets. Consider becoming a premium subscriber. For $9 a month or less, premium subscribers receive a number of benefits. Podcasts are posted immediately after they're recorded, transcripts are made available within 24 hours premium subscribers get direct access to the host and access to private channels on our discord server they also get generous discounts to our virtual conferences and other services and of course there are no ads or interruptions visit contrarian.supercast.tech for more information that's contrarian.supercast.tech I need to tell you about Merck Research. MerckResearch.com, M-E-R-K. I read these reports on a regular basis and can absolutely recommend them. Uh, their research is different. They do not cherry pick positive or negative charts, nor do they fall into the trap of confirmation bias. They have an intellectually consistent approach. They grew through a consistent set of relevant data, put them through the same consistent set of frameworks, and then summarize the whole thing in a checklist with a concise written summary. And now listeners of this podcast can take advantage of a special offer, which is a three-month free trial to Merck Research. Simply visit the website MerckResearch.com, sign up for one of the subscriptions, and enter the code CONTRARIAN at checkout to take advantage of this limited offer. That's MerckResearch.com, M-E-R. Okay. Welcome back. Gary Mashuris here, Silver Ring Value Partners up in Boston, uh, talking about this approach and the, the defensive element of behavioral finance. Let's talk now about the markets and, and what you're seeing out there in, in the markets and what we, your, your take and, and what might be wrong by, by the narrative. Yeah, so I think, you know, right now as we we're recording this, you know, you have this whole block trade controversy, right? Yeah. Uh, starting on Friday and over the weekend. And um, so here's a, you know, fascinating little story that I think both touches on 
the behavioral aspect of things, as well as actually as a current events. So I used to have a large position in one of the uh, stocks that were, you know, for those of you who don't know, apparently there are some large family office that was over levered that received margin calls and was essential and Friday enforced liquidation, which by mm -hmm. the way, is usually a value investor's dream because you like to buy from four sellers, right? That's mm -hmm. kind of what we do. One of the things we do anyway, but in this case, and I was, so I teach a value investing seminar um, to a business school students. And I was, you know, so I turned off my Bloomberg for the day. I kind of was teaching the seminar and um, I saw, I see a call from uh, one of my friends who's also an investor. I, I don't pick it up. I'm teaching the seminar. I see a call from another, uh, you know, investor uh, friend and who's a good friend of mine. I'm like, you know, I'm, you know, hopefully they're not like in dire straits on the side of the road uh, or something like that. I'm going to call them back later. I'm teaching. So finally I call them back. I'm like, Hey, what's up? I was in the middle of a class. Uh, and they say, well, have you seen what's happening with stock XYZ? And this is a very large cap stock that's down something like 30% plus. Mm, right. I can kind of figure out which one it is, but go on. We're not going to uh, name you know, it. Yeah. So yeah, I will name it by name, but you know, if you figure it out, then you get a, you know, extra credit for you. Mm. Um, yeah. So, uh, and um I used to own it up until recently. And so a little quick, quick detour here into kind of a defensive behavioral technique. So I like to say that your temperament as a value investor is your biggest asset, or at least one of your biggest assets. Because look, anyone can learn how to uh, model in Excel. Anyone can study you know, security analysis or Warren Buffett or many of the other great investors, and they should. I have many mm -hmm. times and I teach that and so forth. However. I think the question is, can you then act rationally under extreme pressure? Because it's one thing to do it in a theoretical setting. It's another thing to do it in the heat of quote-unquote battle mm -hmm. when a lot of money is at stake. And for some people, ego and other emotions are at stake as well, right? So I had this large you know, position that for a while languished. And then finally, uh, the stock market started to recognize it, uh, its value. Um, you know, as it reached a certain point, I sold some, then I sold some more. And the momentum was just on the upward side. It was so incredibly strong. It was telling me, don't sell, Gary, don't sell. You always sell too soon, right? And it's true. I always sell too soon. That's just, I'm a good buyer and I'm probably a terrible seller of, hmm. uh, of securities. And I know that. And I was saying to myself, well, should I just hold on a little longer? I mean, it's going up 5% a day. You know, <laughs> you know, if I wake another week, I might you know, be even richer, right? Um, and then I said, you know what, Gary? Every morning you're waking up and you're starting your day thinking about this one investment. And so the question then is, I ask myself is, how much is that costing me in terms of the quality of investment decisions that this discomfort, this constant nagging focus on this one position, it's kind of sucking uh, all my attention and uh, sapping my focus away from all the other things. And I said, you know what, even if my, maybe I'm leaving a little bit of money on the table, I'm going to uh, you know, just stick to my process exit this position. I recognize the momentum. It's not part of what I do. I recognize there's a good chance that I'll look foolish and I've sold too early again, but I bought it well. I made a, a very healthy amount of profit. Uh, it's close to my fair value. If I leave the last 10% of the table uh, or 20%, so be it. That is what it is. And then now, you know, on the offensive part, the same stock has gotten almost cut in half, you know, uh, right? And so, uh, well, two things. One is, how fortunate I am that I did sell mm. all my process, not because the stock got cut in half, but because imagine all the bag and mental baggage I would be w sitting here with, if I still owned it, it would be regret. It would be like just pain. It would be all kind of fear, greed cycle. So now I'm completely on the sidelines, uh, completely rational. But by the way, as soon as I sold that investment, my mind cleared. I was able to focus on my other investments. It was great. And even though, and I call it, is sometimes rational to be just a little bit irrational. And what I mean by that is you leave a little bit of money on the table, maybe from a pure expected value point of view, it's a negative expected value decision by a little bit. I'm not saying go crazy and you know, make really bad decisions. But if that adds a lot of positive expected value to your other decisions, that's an important thing to consider that people don't. So now on the offensive part, now I'm sitting here with a very clear head no biases whatsoever other than, I mean, I have a history with the company, but I don't own it. And I can make a decision with what I want to do now. And I'll give you a hint. I'm not going to reveal like, you know, uh, day by day kind of investment actions, but um, 
my value assessment hasn't changed. Mm -hmm. So here is a behavioral phenomenon where a stock that people thought was, was worth X is now trading somewhere between 0.5 and 0.6 of X. And nothing has changed fundamentally. So this is a perfect behavioral example, and here's why. Because usually there is some fundamental scary thing that's happening. Maybe it's a recession, maybe it's a competitive dynamic that's changing. And we as value investors have to tease apart how much of the new information affects the value and how much does not, right? And that's our job and that's what we do. Sometimes it's hard. Sometimes you're not 100% sure. Maybe this means the stock is worth less, but maybe not as much less as the market's saying and all that kind of stuff. And that's normal kind of affair, I know, that we have to deal with as value investors. That's our job. This case, there is no fundamental news whatsoever. There is a pure giant force liquidation. And yet we, as human animals, are trained from, uh, mentally from the days our ancestors were in the savannah. Like, again, the famous example, right? If you saw the rest of the tribe start to run and you were sitting there being introspective saying, well, I don't see a saber-toothed tiger. Um, I don't see any, you know, uh, teeth. I don't see, you know, that's probably the wind rustling, right? If you were sitting there saying on the one hand, on the other hand, you most, sometimes you were, you felt smart and the other suckers ran for nothing, but there were once in a while you got eaten. And so you're underrepresented in the gene pool, right? Mm -hmm. And so we are so trained to run if others are running that it's a very strong temptation, right? And so all of these people, even though there are articles now on Bloomberg saying it's purely a liquidation event, they're saying, wait a second, does someone know something? Everybody else is running. Should I run? Yes, I'm mm -hmm. going to run and I'm going to ask questions later. So as a very calm, rational, process-oriented value investor, I think I'm in a good position to take advantage of that. Hmm. This is interesting because in light of all this news that you touched on at the Archegos capital liquidation, and this is something that obviously, to your point, people are asking if this is more of a broader event. And oftentimes markets do treat this as risk off. They seem to on the open overnight. Mm -hmm. Now, obviously there might be repercussions for banks like Nomura and, and Credit Suisse, but that's another story for another day. As far as the broader market though, there is some precedence to your point about the saber-toothed tiger where this has caused a lot of pain before. We all know about long-term capital management mm -hmm. in sure. 1998. But then more recently, you know, in, well, in 2007, there were, and I've talked about this on, on this podcast with pr previous guests, a couple of Bear Stearns hedge funds imploded. And this was kind of mm -hmm. seen as the canary in the coal mine on the great financial crisis. I don't even think the market reacted to that particular event at all. But again, this was like more than a year before Lehman Right. in September 2008. But so the point is, like, could this be, and it seems like you're saying it isn't, a, a kind of a broader cause for concern in the markets? And if not, why not? So I think, look, markets are very complex uh, kind of ecosystems, right? Mm -hmm. And anyone who thinks they figured out the markets, you know, are in for a humbling experience. <laughs> you know, I've been doing this for 20 years, and I can tell you I have not figured out the markets, and I haven't really met anyone who has. Because it's a system that's so complex in the short term that feeds off of expectations about expectations about expectations with so many kind of gears turning and affecting each other with feedback loops that it's impossible to know. Like a friend of mine uh, emailed me about the stock just as an example, saying, well, I think it's going to be down a lot in the first hour and then going to go close up a lot. And I said, you know what? I can see that possibility. I can see a possibility where this forced liquidation triggers other margin calls at other overlevered hedge funds and so forth. And this contagion spreads. I am just going to act on my relationship between price and value. Mm -hmm. Here's why. Because I don't use leverage. And this is exactly, by the way, the exact <laughs> reason I don't use leverage <laughs> is because the best way, you know, the fastest way to lose money is to lever up and be wrong, right? A lot of hedge funds found that out. And mm -hmm. I think I'm trying to optimize for safe long-term compounding of capital. It does, it, and that's sure, I'm not gonna put up 40% returns per year, but those aren't sustainable for anyone you know, yeah. without massive leverage. And to come back to your question though, here's how I think about the markets today. I think you have a very kind of dry forest with a lot of kind of you know, dry deadwood running, uh, lying around and you know, 95 degree weather and you know, full sun, right? And so the question then is, is there going to be a giant fire? 
well, the conditions are ripe for a giant fire. You have mm. clearly, you have a three-tier market. You have clearly a bubble tier. And, you know, I'm not going to name it by name, but, you know, uh, you probably know the, uh, some of these, you know, companies and you, they're in the news and so forth. There's no debate that that's in the bubble tier. There is a second tier of very expensive stocks, but they're not necessarily in the bubble. They're basically high quality companies that are very expensive by historical standards, and their prices will prove to be reasonable if two things are true. One is their fundamentals hold up to expectations, and two, interest rates stay low, right? And if those two things don't you know, hold out, uh, then they will turn out to have been very much overvalued. But if those things, you know, stay true, then they're not overvalued. They're reasonably priced given the alternatives. And then there's a third tier of cheap stocks with problems of some sort, right? And it's whether it's secular decline or um, you know, cyclical fears about COVID or whatever, but they're problems. And, and so what's happening though is, you know, the pendulum has swung very far towards uh, you know, the greed side, right? You know, you have uh, people aboard they can't go to casinos because of COVID, and they're sitting there gambling on quote-unquote commission-free. I guess it is technically commission-free, yeah. uh, you know, trading. And so, the uh, it, all it takes is a small spark, right, or one uh, stray lightning, and there's going to be a giant fire. But it doesn't have to be that way. So it's impossible mm-hmm. to tell if we're going to have a kind of a meltdown. But uh, is the setup pretty much in favor one? Yes, but it's just mm-hmm. not the only path that the world can take. And I think as a manager of risk, and I think one of the things as an investor, you know, if you, I mean, if you look, if you're an analyst and you're kind of just coming, coming up with your best ideas for someone else, you don't have to think about that. But if you're managing a whole portfolio for the long term, and most of my family's capital is in my partnership, you have to manage risk. And one of the things you have to think about as a manager of risk is the different paths the world can take. And how do you make sure that under no path do you do particularly badly? And on the most paths, you do reasonably well. Yeah, yeah. But I mean, no risk, no return, right? I mean, you have to, at some point. Correct. You can't hedge everything. You know, there, right. you, know the, the, you can't hedge every single thing. But you're looking at, first of all, I think some people are just wired to be risk averse, like I am. I'm an immigrant mm-hmm. to this country and, you know, I grew up poor and I kind of, I really don't like losing money. So I'm mm. very sensitive as one great investor, I forget who it was, said, I look down before I look up. So I look mm-hmm. at how can I look at money on this investment before I start thinking about how much money I can make. Mm. But also, I think a lot about how the pieces of the portfolio come together. And do I have a situation where one world event or one path the world can take can really cause a lot of permanent capital loss? And I'm, by the way, I don't care if the portfolio gets marked down next month or next week. Mm. That's perfectly fine. I have a very stable group of LPs. They are behaving in the way I want, meaning they're adding capital when I tell them that the opportunity is good. So if, if everything gets sold off, I'll be happy to buy more. What I am worried about is getting arrogant, overconfident, and back to behavioral biases, kind of starting to believe I'm unfollowable or all these kind of things, and making a mistake where we permanently lose a big chunk of our capital. Mm-hmm. That's a no-no. Mm-hmm. Fair enough. I want to just uh, real quick go back to your example, play devil's advocate a tiny bit on the forest being full of dry wood and the sun beating down, which is kind of an interesting analysis. But to play that a little further, you have a central bank that has also flooded the market with liquidity. And so all of the various fire trucks, you could say the banks maybe, right. have a ton of water in their tanks to put out any potential fires as, as they arise. So potentially here, the central bank, which does ultimately control a lot, if not everything, and is, is still so far pointing towards keeping interest rates very low indefinitely, or, or for the foreseeable future, I should say, isn't that still a setup where, like I said, these fires can be put out and the market can continue to tread higher, at least for now? Well, so one interesting tidbit that I've heard many years ago, and I'll tell you how it's related to your question in a second, is that the incidence rate of kind of hike or mountain climbing, rock climbing fatalities has not decreased with the advent of better, sa- better safety gear. Hmm. And so you would say, why not? You know, is it more safety gear? Well, no, because the hikers or the climbers know that they have better safety gear, so they take mm. more risk. 
and they they die or fall off the cliff just as much despite the better gear because they you know they they just can go higher or more dangerous places than they wouldn't have before so again i'm not a macro investor i, I don't know what the fed is going to do or even how i would use it if i did but i guess number one to your point we're observing a very interventionist kind of government entity that's trying to control large parts of the market as a separate discussion whether it's desirable or not but they've certainly left far behind like their like real mandate and they're now just they what they're trying to do is they're trying to control the wealth effect trying to goose spending by controlling asset prices in all kinds of markets right including the junk bond market and to some degree indirectly the equity market right they're trying to make people come home open their 401k statement or their you know regular savings account statement full of stocks and make them feel richer so they go out and buy something you know a new mattress mm -hmm. or a new house or whatever right and that's a dangerous game so i think just because these people who are very powerful and they do have a lot of ammunition uh have every incentive to keep the game going doesn't mean that they have control of all the forces and mm -hmm. history shows that no one person no matter how powerful or organization has complete control over a very complex ecosystem of human minds. Mm. And so the reason, you know, by the way, you know, everyone is so focused on this liquidation, whether it's going to force a contagion or not that we were talking about previously, is because the market is so levered. Everyone is taking a leverage. Everyone is using options up to the wazoo. Everyone is gambling. Well, not everyone, but a lot of market participants are gambling. So, and everybody, it's kind of like the old joke about, you know, you know, the musical chairs game that hmm. everyone wants to make sure they get to the chair before everyone else when the music stops. So everyone is listening. Wait, did the music stop? Hmm. Did it stop? I got it down, right? And and by, and when the music does stop, there's going to be an incredible rush for the few chairs. And so I don't think the Fed in and of itself can save that, even if they go to negative rates or, you know, even if they do things that are, to me, clearly outside their mandate, like, in heck, Maybe they'll buy equity ETFs the next time mm. as opposed to junk bonds ETFs uh, to quote unquote stabilize the markets when their real goal really was to kind of prop up the security prices. But regardless of what you think of it, I think that it would be very dangerous to rely on the Federal Reserve as this omnipotent actor. I think you need to take them into account and you understand that, yes, easy money uh, is around for a long time, but that doesn't mean you can't have a market crash in the midst mm. of all of that. Very interesting. All right. Um, just another quick break here before we come back and ask Gary about himself. He touched on it at the outset, uh, where he comes from and, and some of his background and how he got into investing and how he finds himself at his current station in life. But real quick, a short break. Again, only for those who are not premium subscribers. Sick of me yet? Become a premium subscriber and avoid all ads or interruptions. Other benefits as well. Visit contrarian.supercast.tech for more information. Gary, this is the segment of the show where we talk to our guests about their background, how they came to the current state uh, in their career. And so curious about your background and, and yeah, how it all got started. So why don't you let us know? Yeah, well, thank you for asking. I mean, I, I came as an immigrant to this country from the former Soviet Union. You know, my family is Jewish. They didn't like us there very much, so we left. You know, credit to my mom. And I was growing up in New York, and I saw, you know, she's a smart woman. She has a master's in math, and she was putting her first dollars of savings into this thing called mutual funds. That's kind of was my first introduction to that there's real money out there for people who it matters and it's going to affect their retirement or whatnot. The next kind of big thing for me was I was at MIT studying computer science and economics during the tech bubble 20 years ago, or I guess over 20 years ago. And I was basically, you know, I thought I was smart. I was studying these subjects and I decided to buy a tech stock. And I was very lucky because I think I found the only tech stock that didn't go up. This was 2000 before the, uh, the bubble burst. Um, and I say I'm lucky because investing, a lot of times you get false reinforcement of bad yeah. habits. And so had I found the stocks that were going up, I would have thought, oh, I'm a genius. I'm going to pick, hmm. you know, you know, high-flying stocks. That kind of made me question myself. And right around that time, Warren Buffett, who was kind of a little bit of a persona non grata this, uh, during that time period, mm -hmm. kind of like a little bit like he is now, yeah. came to speak at Sloan, which is the business school at MIT. And I went to listen to this guy speak. And I'm like, oh, he's wealthy. He must know something. Um, and here was this guy talking about things that are second nature to me. 
a long term, intrinsic value, competitive advantage, all those things. And I immediately discarded, realized I was speculating and discarded what I was doing and started reading everything I could about value investing. You know, started mm-hmm. at Fidelity, had a great mentor there, a gentleman by the name of Joel Tillinghast, who is a terrific value investor. He manages the Fidelity Low Price Stock Fund, you know, terrific person, a great mentor that I learned a lot from early in my career. And then about five years ago, I was at another large firm. I was managing a concentrated value portfolio. I just realized I had a point in my life where I had some financial flexibility. I didn't want to work at a big firm anymore where the goal is to gather as much assets as possible, where success is not measured by the value add necessarily, but how much money you make for the firm. And I realized that you can't have true fiduciary duty to the management company, if there's one set of owners that own the investment manager, and to the client who's giving you the capital to invest, if those things are in conflict. And very often, I feel like in this business, those things are in conflict. You know, mm-hmm. The most obvious is you know, funds get way too big and they balloon out, and that's good for the management company, but it's not good for the existing client. Now, although there will be some spin for why it's going to help the manager get sure. more resources and all that. So my wife's a doctor, and we have three kids now, but our... Uh, uh, twins uh, were two and a half at the time, was thereabouts. And um, my son, we told him, Mama helps people, which is how we explain what she did. And my son, uh, my oldest son, started walking her out the doors, have, saying, Have a good day at work, Mama helping people. Hmm. And then uh, a few weeks later, he started saying the same thing to me hmm. Have a good day at work, Papa helping people, which kind of accelerated my thinking of who am I going to really be helping? You know, if I'm really successful, I'm going to gather billions and billions of dollars, I'll make a lot of money. But so what? I grew up poor. You know, we have a Toyota in the driveway and I like it. I, I could buy whatever car I want at this point. I like my Toyota. It's comfortable and gets me to where I need to go. And I have three kids. Like, what am I going to do with whatever, a Ferrari? Uh, you know, uh, other than, you know, maybe you know, try to do some social signaling or something like that. Yeah, I think that's um, kind of the point of having a Ferrari. But anyway, go on. Yeah. And uh, no, no, I get it. You know, it's, it's, it, by the way, I don't think, I don't judge people yeah. for having one. I just, that's just not what floats my boat. And that kind of accelerated my thinking. And I wanted to start a small partnership where I can do it the way I think is right for me. And pure value investing, not an asset gathering machine, do it my way. And that's how Silvering Value Partners was born. Hmm. Very interesting. And now you feel with running your own partnership, there, there's no longer the conflict between needing to gather assets and produce returns for your LPs. I, I think not. And I think uh, I've set up a, as much alignment as possible. And one of the ways I did is that I'm limited to a base salary from my fees, uh, from my base fee. And that, and that base salary grows with inflation as opposed to with assets. And that's on purpose so that I don't automatically get richer the more assets I gather. And then there is a hurdle rate. Uh, yeah. And then there is a deferral clawback mechanism. All of those things without getting into details are set up to make sure that the only way I really get wealthy over time is by building wealth for others and taking a small mm-hmm. cut of that as opposed to transferring wealth uh, by you know managing whatever, $20 billion or $50 billion and taking 50 bips of it for nothing and you know, producing mm-hmm. market returns, which is a lot of what we see in the industry. Mm-hmm. And the other part is, you know, I have all my money in pretty much, you know, other than some retirement accounts in the partnership, the money I'm giving my mother uh, for her retirement uh, is in the partnership. You know, so I don't invest in stocks outside the partnership, which by the way, always boggled my mind where some portfolio manager runs up to my office and says, Hey Gary, I have a great PA, a personal account idea. Like, what does that mean? It's not good enough for your fund, but it's good enough for your person. Like, this is the economy again. It's, you know, so, uh, and look, maybe I won't be as successful as a business, but I live a very happy life. I, you know, I'm fine, more than fine financially, let's put it that way. But more importantly, I feel true pride in what I do and I wouldn't change it for the world. That's really cool. Yeah. Huh. Very nice. And by the way, this gets, you also got into some of the reasons why I have never tried to manage money. Although one of them is I, I can see the futility of it as far as producing returns, especially when people are comparing it on a, on a monthly basis, beating benchmarks on a monthly basis is, is virtually impossible. I, I have found, um, which doesn't stop people like me in the press from holding investors uh, funds especially to account on that but anyway anyway anytime you have a down month you see it headlines blaring but um wow that's that's really interesting so now and so the the i, I assume that your your fund is open just for um qualified investors and and, and, and such. correct yeah, it's, yeah a, so mm-hmm. it's a concentrated partnership and that's one of the downsides is i wish i could help people like my mother 
kind of the mm. middle class because look the poor don't have investment funds right that they have a right. different problem um the middle class is where you probably have the greatest need and they probably are the least well served because there are all mm -hmm. these marketing machines you know yeah. kind of blaring commercials at them to kind of siphon off their money somewhere other than the way yeah. it should go yeah. but unfortunately i can only take qualified investors so it's usually sophisticated individuals they have a couple of family offices they have a foundation but it's investors who and by the way it's important when i was uh, starting uh you know i'm not going to name drop but a very well established value investor here in boston was kind enough to give me advice and one of the things he said is how important it was to have the right partners the right investors in the wow. partnership because the wrong investors which is the majority act cyclically meaning if a manager has a, a stretch of good returns they pile on and give the money and then they take it away right as soon as the market's rough or something like that and for a value investor like myself to have a long-term time horizon which i do and to have it matter you have to have partners who also are not going to look at those monthly returns and use that as a metric for whether to add capital or not but instead We'll add capital when I say, hey, guys, the opportunity is great. Mm -hmm. And I did that. So the proof was last year where, you know, I had a overall a, a pretty good year last year. But in the middle of it, it numbers didn't look great. They look bad. Yeah. Like, yeah. Uh, you know, and but the opportunity set was great. And I, I wrote to my partners and I said, guys, look, this is a great opportunity that I can buy things that are pretty irrationally priced. If you have access funds, send them to me. I'll deploy them well. Mm -hmm. I quickly got a bunch of wires. I was able to deploy them, and it played out quite well um, after the fact. But the fact that people didn't wait for – this was in March and April, where most people were sitting in their hands saying, yeah. oh, my gosh, how much further does the market have to go? Right. So I kind of want to have a high bar, not because I'm high and mighty, but because I value people who behave in that way, which makes my job much easier than if I had a bunch of people who – were calling me saying how's performance this week or yeah. how is this month or anything like that which a lot of my peers do have and that yeah, makes their job harder but do you still report monthly returns to to your lps um the administrator does so the, the uh, partnership is uh, valued uh monthly um because it takes money monthly or it can or it can take money on a monthly basis so it has to be valued because otherwise you know if you don't calculate the nav you can't take money uh, in right but uh, I doubt that many people look at the monthly statements. I write to my partners quarterly, but I really write to them about process. Mm -hmm. Because one of the things I learned is, like, you have to train your investors. And mm -hmm. if you, like, let's say you have a good stretch of returns and you write to them, hey, look at me. I am awesome. I had a great six months. Then you're training them. First of all, you're just fooled by randomness at that point. Mm -hmm. Second of all, you're training them to think about something that's noise as important. Mm -hmm. So I try to teach them know how am i making decisions because ultimately over time quality of decisions translates into quality of outcomes but in the short term there can be a big disconnect so in the short term i want them to focus on is gary sticking to his process like i have an owner's manual which by the way if anyone uh, yeah. wants to request and i'll be happy to send them uh, the owner's manual where i can explain my process in depth hmm. that's kind of like my covenant with my partners of how should they expect me to behave both as, as a business person, but also as an investor. And then they should hold me accountable to that. By the way, it's a great behavioral tool to kind of come back full circle because it creates an accountability where even if you do have wild and crazy tendency to speculate, which I don't, but let's say you did, knowing that you have to explain every decision really kind of uh, reminds me, no, 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 wait, that's not part of my process. Mm. So I shouldn't do that. Which, by the way, I always kind of smile a little bit when all these hedge funds are so proprietary and they don't want to reveal their position you know it's like in a few cases it makes sense when something is illiquid and they're buying it i get that but in a lot of cases it doesn't it's just kind of just crying trying to create an aura of mystique and i think they're oh, doing yeah. themselves a disservice by doing this i'm a black box magician as opposed to look i'm an engineer by training i like processes i like repeatable systems that can produce repeatable outcomes over time and i'm trying to train my investors to focus on the quality of the process, not the short-term outcome. Yeah, yeah, very interesting points. Although I would argue to your point about hedge funds and and you know the, the part of the, the creating the mystique is very much the marketing aspect of it, and is very much what they're doing. And, and I like to point to the Bernie Madoff school. Although Bernie Madoff, by the way, was not a hedge fund; he was just a crook. Right. But but what he did when he was raising money was was pretty interesting. Is that he would tell people, "Oh, I'm," or if people could even get him, he'd say, "You know." the funds closed, we're not taking the investors. 
and you know they would <laughs> right. then of scarcity. course try to yeah, yeah exactly you know creating this idea of scarcity anyway uh, we've touched on a lot of interesting things and, and kind of admittedly not where where i thought the conversation would go but but it's all very interesting um in light of the news today and also but also in terms of the this idea of financial literacy that we hear a, a lot about or illiteracy and i'm wondering since you are an educator and you clearly think a lot about these things if you have any thoughts on ways that we can improve this in the future if, if, it, if it is even necessary because the counter argument people say we need to teach financial literacy in schools and what i tell them is that we already teach writing in schools and <laughs> i have right. um you know had to hire and train entry-level reporters and i can assure you a lot of them do not write very well right. at all and these are people who have college educations a lot of very very and attended very good colleges in many instances anyway not everybody, but many of them. And if you're one of my reporters and listening to this, I'm not speaking about you. Anyway, but to go back to you here, what, what are your views on that? I think it's very important to keep hammering base rates uh, at people. And here's what I mean by that. You know, so let, let's use me as an example. You know, I'm having a good year this year, like unusually good year. So the, the thing I'm, I'm thinking of writing, my writing my next letter that's coming up uh, next month and I'm actually going to remind my investors, like, hey, this is an outlier. Don't expect this to be the new norm. Uh, here is what's a reasonable long-term rate of return. Focus on that, which is very different, I think, than a lot of my peers who are like, hey, yeah, you know, I'm up 40%. You know, look at me. You know, And they're kind of implicitly, even though there's fine princess, you know, past performance doesn't yeah. is not indicative of future returns, but they're kind of saying, hey, hey, look, I'm awesome. Whereas... I think if we remind people of base rates and like, what are the base rates? Well, like for equity investing, the, the long-term base rates are six to 7% above inflation. And from starting points like we are in today, there's a very good odds that that's gonna be much, much lower. So if someone is getting into investing, whether it's on one of these quote unquote commission-free uh, setups or whatever, thinking that this is easy money, you know, there's this idea in behavioral finance of inside view versus outside view. Outside view is the base rate, where if a thousand people just like me attempt, have attempted this in the past, what's been their level of success at this? The inside view is, what am I going to do? So we all think we're all overconfident, except for me. Again, I'm joking. Uh, you know, we're all overconfident, right? And so we have this nudge in our head saying that we're going to do better uh, than most, right? We're all above average. So I think just hammering at people, hey, Everybody else who thought they were above average mm -hmm. also got 5% per year over 20 years or whatever the number is, right? And just steering people, like I always give this advice to friends who ask me, if you don't understand the manager's process or you don't have the ability to, you know, find a broad low-cost index fund and invest in dollar-cost yeah. average. And this is from a quote-unquote hedge fund manager or a, an active investor. But look, like you're not doing yourself any favors because... There are all these big marketing shops masquerading as investment firms out there who would love to say our fund has 17 Morningstar stars or whatever. Mm -hmm. You know, I'm joking, but you know, something like that. Buy it. You know, it's like selling hotcakes, right? Buy this. You know, reviewed by you know Lipper top decile lip. You know, and it's all a, a very cynical behavioral game to let to make people forget about the base rates get them to be overconfident in the process, you know, let this institution collect a hundred bips uh, annuity mm. from them for nothing in a lot yeah. of cases. I don't want to pay with a broad brush. There are some great organizations as well, but unfortunately too many bad actors in this business yeah. who just care about their own wealth and not their clients. So yeah. I think if there was to be one thing, it's just hammering base rates, base rates, base rates. And if you are a know nothing investor, it's okay. Just go with a low cost passive strategy. Yeah. And most of the time they'll do fine. Interesting. Very cool. All right. Gary Mishuris, thank you so much for joining the Contrarian Podcast, Investing Podcast today. Uh, maybe in closing, um, is there are there ways for listeners to find out more about you if they can as a um, you know qualified fund? You, you A lot of these guys are not, you know, you mentioned the marketing and, and there are obviously strict limits on that. And so a lot of people aren't on social media or anything like that. And, but how might people be able to find out more about you? Yeah, so, you know, my company, the silverringvaluepartners.com, you can, uh, there's a form there, you can request an owner's manual. And by the way, a lot of students requested, I send it out to everyone who asks okay. because uh, it's not a marketing document. And I'm hopeful that maybe there are aspiring investors who are learning and it'll help them in some way. Like I've been helped by people I consider my mentors and 
So I want to kind of pay it forward. So I don't care if you have a lot of money or no money. If you want it, I'll send it to you. Cool. I also write articles uh, about once a month on the site called behavioralvalueinvestor.com. Uh, so if you Google my name and behavioral value investor, and that's basically writing at the intersection of value investing and behavioral finance. So that's very cool. Another place where you can sign up, read an article, send it to a friend or an enemy or anyone in between. Huh. Interesting. By the way, also, while you're on the topic, as full-time students get the premium version of the Contrarian Investor podcast with its daily podcast for free. So if you are a, a student, a full-time student, let me know and, and I'll hook you up. Now, just wanted to ask, Silver Ring, is that a reference to Lord of the, Lord of the Rings? Or? No, uh, very quick. You know, you know, when I was leaving Russia, uh, they made us leave most of our things behind. We could only take like one item of a nose arc of things so i had mm -hmm. to leave a ring that my mother gave me um in uh you know in russia and when i came to italy waiting for refugee status to get into the u.s we were, so were selling things on the bazaar to make a living and i sold a bunch of things little things and made my first uh 35 dollars i was very proud of that was i was nine or ten i forget and was it uh, dollars or lira uh or so <laughs> there was there was no euro. This is when there were li the lira was yeah, still the lira. Uh, I there. The lira. So I, I made like fifty mil, and a mil is a thousand lira, and like a thousand mil, uh, uh, lira, lira was like seventy uh, cents right. or something right. like that. So it was translated to thirty five dollars. It's uh, and the biggest thing I sold was this empty suitcase from what my mom was selling, um, and it was for five mil. And I was passing by this jewelry store, and essentially. I saw a ring that looked just like the ring I was forced to leave behind Russia, a gold ring um, for five mil. And finally, I got this five mil note, and I said to my, to my mom, can I buy this ring? And she kind of said, I'm like, you're kind of pretty close to destitute. We don't have any money. You're really going to spend it on jewelry? But she like believed in like freedom, and I made the money. She said, fine. So I went into the store. They kind of looked at me like, who's this urchin you know, coming into a jewelry store? But I had the five mil note in my, in, in my grasp. So they, okay, they saw some money. And I saw that there were a whole bunch of other rings, very similar to the one that was for five mil, but they were like 30, 40, 50 mil. But so I proudly gave them the note. They gave me the, my, my gold ring. I took it home. And you know, two weeks later, I found out uh, why it was so much cheaper and everything else, which is it was a silver ring with gold polish. Uh, I didn't know enough Italian to understand it. I don't think they meant to deceive me. They probably figured I knew it was a, gold, a silver ring that's gold-plated. But I learned it the hard way. And it's a good reminder that not everything that's cheap is necessarily a good bargain. And also to do your homework and do your own due diligence and don't just rely on first impressions. So that's why I call the silver yeah. ring value partners. Very cool. Wow, that's a good story. I'm glad I asked. Awesome. Well, Gary, thank you again so, for, for joining us on the Contrarian Investor Podcast. Thank you all for watching and listening and look forward to speaking to you again next week. Thank you for listening to the Contrarian Investor Podcast. We hope you enjoyed this episode. To subscribe to this podcast, simply open your favorite podcast software and search for Contrarian Investor. Follow us on social media by searching for Contrarian Investor on Twitter and Instagram. Send us your thoughts on feedback at contrarianpod.com. We look forward to speaking to you again next time. Join us today during the Jeep Celebration event. Right now, get 20% below MSRP for an average of 15178 under MSRP on the purchase of a 2023 Jeep Grand Cherokee Overland 4xe or Summit 4xe. Not compatible with lease offers or with any other consumer incentive offers. 15,178 average based on 20% below average MSRP from all 2023 Grand Cherokee Overland 4xE and Summit 4xE models and dealer stock. Residency restrictions apply. Take retail delivery from dealer stock by 4-1. Jeep is a registered trademark.